He answered and said, A man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed, and I received sight. Then said they to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then again, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, What do you say about him? that he has opened your eyes. He said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But we do not know by what means he now sees. We do not know who has opened his eyes. He is of age. Ask him. He shall speak for himself. His parents spoke these words because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if any man confessed that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. Brother Starin, would you uh, pray as we begin? Amen. Please be seated. We pick up in chapter 9 right where we left off in chapter 8. And Jesus left the temple. And it says, as he passed by, this blind man was seen by his disciples. Most of us here do not have a very good reference for what it would be like to be blind. Um, Some of us wear glasses or contacts. I am a contact wearer and Um, If you ever see me really early in the morning or really late at night, you might see my glasses on. But I uh, wear them just a little, just enough to make the eye doctor happy. But I remember when I was in third grade and I was, um, my grades were starting to go down and my parents were investigating and pretty soon they decided I needed to see the eye doctor. And so they hauled me in there and uh, I had a very kind eye doctor who would say, 
all right, now, A, B, or the same. A, B, or the same. And he said it in such a kind and warm voice that you almost wanted to fall asleep right in the chair there. But um, I would pick, and uh, pretty soon I would get a prescription. And for a while there, my prescription kept getting worse and worse and worse. And so I have a negative 5.5. I don't know what you have, but I know if I don't have my contacts and I don't have my glasses, I can't drive. The only way I can read is right like this. And so, you know, functionally, uh, without anything in my eyes, I would probably be considered legally blind. But it appears the man in the story was not just of poor vision, but that he was indeed blind, and he could not see, and he could not see from his birth. You know, a blind person in our day and time at least has some resources. You know, there's seeing eye dogs, and there's some support services, and Thankfully, in our day and time, we're a little more aware and respectful and helpful to those with physical limitations. But in this day and time, a blind person had none of those benefits. As the story goes on to say, he was a beggar, and uh, he would beg, and that was about all that he could do. And so for a blind person, it was a curse. It was a curse that would follow them and dominate their life for the entirety of their existence. In, in the Old Testament, we don't have any examples of a person who was blind who was healed. There are various miracles at a few stages in the Old Testament. Never once is there a blind person who is made to see. But there is, in the Old Testament, a prophecy that one day there would come someone who would heal the blinded eye. And Isaiah 42, 6 and 7 says this, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand and will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light of the Gentiles, here it is, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison and those who sit in darkness out of the prison house. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. So the prophet Isaiah said, there's coming a Messiah, many, many different things in these verses uh, from 42.1 down to 42.7 are described of this one who had come. But the one description that we want to focus on today is that the Messiah who was promised in the Old Testament would open the blinded eyes. And the man in this text was not only blind, but he was known to be blind. Being in Jerusalem, begging where he begged, the people knew him, and he was well known as a beggar. And when you've been blind your whole life, and you've lived in the same area, and you've begged out publicly on the street, then guess what? Everybody tends to know that blind guy who begs over there. So uh, as the story unfolds, we find that a number of people want to examine this story. And there's a lot of questions. You know, I don't imagine that uh, this blind man spent much of his life answering deep questions about himself. If anything, it's how are the donations going today, right? Um, have you gotten enough to eat? Maybe a kind heart would ask. But now, all of a sudden on this day, he gets asked a ton of questions by a ton of different people. And he goes from being sort of an outcast on the side of the street to all of a sudden becoming a focal point, to becoming like the center of attention. And everyone has a question and everyone has something to figure out with this man. So as we get into the text, um, the, the outline is very simple today. And the first is simply a blame game, a blame game. In the first couple verses, this story really gets started with the disciples. And so we see the blame game in the first three verses. And verse 2 tells us, His disciples asked him, saying, Master, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The disciples, uh, you know, they, they see that uh, the blind man is there. 
And you know, we, we need to do a quick pause and remember Jesus had healed a number of people before this. He's six months from his crucifixion, so healings are not a rare or an unusual thing to them. And yet they've spent this time with Jesus and their question to Jesus is not, will you heal him? But it's, why was he blind? And in a way it's understandable, but in a way it's also very uh, lacking in compassion. They're almost more interested in this abstract detail of theology than they are of the need of the man right there. Do you know that is a temptation for us sometimes? We get deep into the teachings of God's Word and deep into theology, and that's not a bad thing. I think it's a good thing, generally speaking. But if our questions of theology blind us to the people right in front of us, is it really helpful? Is it really serving God's purposes? And so the disciples are saying, now we have a deep question for you. Look at this blind man. Uh, was it him that sinned, or was it his parents that sinned uh, for why he was born blind? Now, we might sort of kind of recoil at this and say, man, this is a, this is a harsh question, and uh, where, where would they get this idea? Well, Exodus 34, verse 7 does say of the Lord, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and then it says, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children. And it is true sometimes that the effects of our sin unfortunately fall to our children. And there are times where sins that we commit affect our children. And they were wondering if this was the case. Another clear Bible story of this is when David committed adultery. Um, part of the judgment that God brought on David and Bathsheba was that their child would die. And he specifically says it was because of David's sin that the child died. So there are other examples of this in the Bible. But what we don't find examples of is of a child who sins in the womb and is therefore born blind. That side really seems a little absurd to us, and Jesus doesn't address that. And um, actively, we don't understand infants to actively be sinning. Now, we know they're sin-cursed and they have a sin nature, but um, sin being a conscious choice... Um, small, young infants are not able to choose. But notice Jesus' answer. Jesus turning from the blame game, he gives an answer, and I love his answer. It says this, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Jesus makes a clear statement, and we need to let this kind of settle in our souls. Not every bad thing that happens in life is directly connected to a specific sin. And especially those who have a sensitive conscience, especially those who um, maybe uh, struggle and they know they've sinned in their past, they look at every bad thing sometimes that happens and they say, this is God's judgment for sin. Job, when his friends came to him, they said very much the same. They said, there's no way you can have these problems in your life without it being caused by a sin. And the story of Job, as it unfolds, is that Job had not sinned before God sent all these trials in a way where God was judging him for a sin. We're not saying he's perfect, but we're saying the bad things that happened were not directly connected to any sins that he had committed. And so Jesus says, this blind man, it was not a sin of him. It was not a sin of his parents that he was born blind. Rather, God did this to show his glory. I want you to pause and think about that for a minute. Sometimes the weaknesses, the limitations, the troubles that we have, God wants to work something good out of them. God wants to bring glory to himself. 
And you know, sometimes we're so tempted to look at our lives through our own little prism, right? Our own little uh, picture, and we forget that God is doing something in our story. I don't know the challenges that you're facing right now. Maybe it's with employment. Maybe it's in your health. Maybe it's in your marriage or your family. Uh, maybe it's just something very deep in your soul, uh, some depression or some fear, something deep down inside. I want to encourage you with this. God is working things out for His glory. God is doing things where He is pointing people to Himself. And I, I want you to think about this for just a minute. If God made your life as easy as possible and as beautiful as possible and gave you your every request and met every need and you just had everything perfect the way you wanted it, and God didn't get any glory out of it, would you be happy about that? Do you know God often does the reverse where, where He sends difficulty and He puts trial and He puts some difficulty in our life and He's doing it to point people to Himself and to lift up His greatness and to show how great He is. And you know, um, in this story, here's a blind man and Jesus says, you know, God actually has been at work in this because he wants to bring glory to himself. Do you know if this man had lived a normal life up to this point, he would have no need to have met Jesus, humanly speaking. He wouldn't have had a need to have met him. You know, if we read the story, it was not the blind man who called out to Jesus and says, hey, hey, please heal me. That's not how the story unfolds, is it? Now that's true of blind Bartimaeus, and there's different accounts of a blind person having that response. But here, who is it? It's the disciples that, that kind of bring this conversation all together. And Jesus says, no, this isn't based on people's sin. This is based on God's glory. Maybe we need to start looking through the challenges that we are facing and ask, how is God working here for his glory? And sometimes our honest answer is this. I have no idea. I have zero idea how God is going to get glory out of this. And that's a fair answer. And sometimes that's our answer. And there's other times where we can see how God will get glory. But the point is this. God is not wasting suffering in your life. He's not wasting difficulty in your life. And all the years that this man was there blind, it was not wasted. It was not wasted. Because the moment this man received his sight, he had immediately met Jesus physically. And he got to see Him physically. But in a moment, later next week, we're going to see how not only did he get his eyesight restored physically, but spiritually he came to have faith in Christ. And you know there are some who have the quote-unquote perfect life, everything's how they want it, and they go straight to hell at their death. But there are others where they have difficulties and they have problems and they find Christ, and you know what? In heaven, they don't look back and say, oh, I wish it didn't work that way. No, they see God's hand in it all. So Jesus says in verse 4, as, as we continue on, verse 4, we see what I call time's up. Where Jesus is simply saying, I have a limited amount of time, and my time is drawing near to a close. Verse 4, Jesus says this, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night comes when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus had told them numerous times about his work. And here again, he says, I have work to do, and I must work the works of Him who sent me. You know, the Father sent Christ, and He had a specific plan for what He was to do on this earth. And Jesus worked out the works of His Father, and He says, I must do it while it is day. The night comes when no man can work. Now, He's, he's saying this in reference to a blind man. It, it's day, 
and the man can't see anything, but he says the nighttime is coming. And so it's kind of in, in uh, it's an interesting context to lay all this out, but he's standing here before the blind man, and he says the night is coming, and when the night comes, I cannot work, but now is my time. Jesus has about six months left on this earth, and he is seeking to use that time to accomplish all that God had given him to do. In John 5, Jesus had said this, I have greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus says, my time is drawing near. I must do the works of God. And you know what one of the works of God was for him to do? Open the eyes of the blind. It was God's plan, it was God's will that those blind eyes be opened. And I'm thankful that when God determines a blind eye is to be seen, is to be open to see, it is done. And Jesus does it. But I want you to see how Jesus does it. He does not just simply lay his hands on it and say, you're healed, right? He uses a peculiar and specific method. And what does he say to this blind man? Verse 6. When he had thus spoken, he spit on the ground and made clay of the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. Therefore he went his way and washed and came back seeing. What we see here in these verses is what I call wash up, verse 6 and 7. Jesus tells him, you need to go wash in the pool. Now first he makes up this paste of clay, and he puts it over his eyes, which if anyone's trying to do this humanly, that's the worst way to help someone see, right? Let me put some mud over your eyes, you know? How's it, how's it going now, right? That's completely opposite of what you would expect. But Jesus now says, you need to go do something. It doesn't say that Jesus went with him. It just says Jesus said, go. Now, if you're blind and you have to go somewhere, how do you do that? I mean, you probably got to kind of stumble your way around. You might have to ask for some help. You might have to get pointed in the right direction. I don't know how agile or, or skilled this man was at getting around. But he really, uh, he had a challenge. He laid out a challenge to him. And if I could just remind us, some of God's miracles that he does, some of God's grace to us is not just, here you go. That's how we want it, right? We want the blessing basket, and we just want to say, drop it here, right? That's how we want God's miracles. But do you know, sometimes God says, I will do a work, and I'm going to do this, but I need you to go there, to say this, to try this, to uh, take the next step, and to move forward in this way, whatever it is that God uh, leads us to do. But let, let's be honest, many of the, the blessings that are promised to us in the Bible, they come with steps attached. They come with, uh, as you obey here, I will bless here. And as you hear my voice and follow me, I will do this. And so this blind man, in, uh, if you could turn me down just a little bit more, Tim, I think that would help us. The blind man, he, he has a work to do, and he has to go to this pool of Siloam. So I don't know how he got there. I don't know if he asked for help, if he just kind of felt his way. Maybe it wasn't too far, and he kind of knew the way. But he gets there. And he does what he's told. He bends down and he puts water on there and he washes all that mud off. And what's the first thing the blind man sees? The pool of Siloam. 
He sees water. And you've got to remember, he's been blind his whole life. So he has never, ever seen a thing. Can you imagine the joy? Can you imagine the wonder? Can you imagine the amazement of having your eyes after I've gone all those decades without any eyesight? Here now he has his eyes and he can see. I mean, the joy and the wonder that overtook him. And uh, so, so he obeyed Jesus. Jesus' word was fulfilled to him because he obeyed. His eyes were now restored and he could see. So verse 8 now begins what I call uh, analysis. There's the public analysis, the personal analysis, the parental analysis, and a bunch of people start asking this guy questions. Therefore the neighbors said to those who before had seen that he was blind, said, is, not, is this not he who sat and begged? Some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. But he said, I am he. The people are just puzzled and they said, wait a minute, isn't this that beggar that used to sit over here? Isn't this that, that uh, one that used to never be able to see? And people start arguing about it. This is him. No, no, this is his twin brother. You know, This is his cousin. Uh, that's not him. It's just like him. You know? And he says, I'm the guy. I'm the one. And so these questions start coming in and the questions revolve around two things. Who is this guy and how did he get changed? Who is this guy and how did he get changed? Now, we're looking at a physical healing of Jesus. We're looking at something that's physical. Next week, we'll look at the spiritual work that God does in this one's life. But I just want to remind us that when God does a work in our life, especially when a person gets saved, when a person gets saved, people sometimes start saying, is this the same person? Is this, is this really the guy I used to know? I remember a few years ago, we had a man named Nate who got saved in the church. And he told me that at his job, that people talked to him about the difference of what had happened to him after he got saved. And they said, you used to be the most angry employee this company ever had. But now that you've been saved, you've been happy all the time. They said, you're different. You're different. And for this blind man, people looked at him and said, he's different. He can see. He's running around. He's not begging. He is different. Who is this guy? And I'm thankful that Jesus has the power to change us, to transform us. We are not just left to ourselves. When we come to Christ and when He works in us, He does a work of transformation. And you know, Satan wants to tell you, he wants to whisper in your ear, you can't change. You can't be any different. You'll always be this way. You'll always have this problem. You'll never get victory over this problem. But Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Jesus says, I have all authority and power in my hands. And we serve the Lord Jesus who has the keys of death and hell, who has all power at His disposal. And so when we bring people to Jesus, there's no telling what He can't do with them. And here's this blind man and they're saying, who, who is He? He's him. No, he's not him. And he says, yes, that was me. That was me. And in verse 10, they say, how were your eyes opened? And he tells them the truth. What a strange story it is. A man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and I received sight. There is nothing that makes sense about that except for us, the name Jesus, right? Putting mud on your eyes, going to a special place to wash it off. I mean, you could try to replicate that with anyone else and it would do zero, right? It sounds crazy, right? It sounds super weird. But he says, a man who is called Jesus told me to do this. And I did it. And now I can see. 
Now I can see. And so they're questioning him. They're, they're analyzing all this. And then they say to him, where is he? Where is this guy? As though they would like to meet him. As though they would like to ask him about how he did this. You know, when magicians do a trick, the children usually stand by and they say, how'd you do that? How'd you do that? Right? And I doubt that Jesus would have told them how he did it because it was simply his power and his creative authority. But, uh, but even so, I think they had that question. Like, how'd you do that? And so like, where is he? We want to go ask him. But his answer is that he doesn't know where he is. And he responds with that, I do not know. So there's the public analysis. All the people, the regular folk, they wonder. But notice verse 13, and here we go again. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. In a way, we're sort of like, why did you have to do that? Right? Why did you have to do that? Maybe it was just because they didn't know what else to do. Maybe it was more along the lines of the law where he was considered unclean and couldn't go in the temple. And once the priests would consider him clean, then he could be allowed further into the temple. Remember, there were limitations on those who had physical problems. And so if he was declared clean, maybe he could go further. We don't know all the reasons why, but they haul him to the Pharisees. And then it says, and here we go further, and it was the Sabbath day. Oh boy. It's not, they're taking him to the Pharisees and it was the Sabbath day. And they're saying, look at what happened on the Sabbath day. So this is a whole other Sabbath controversy. We've already been through one in the Gospel of John. Here comes another. And if you study all the Gospels and put it together, numerous times Jesus did healings on the Sabbath to show that he is Lord of the Sabbath, to show that it's not a great deal of work for him to heal anyone, and to show that he has authority that exceeds the law and goes beyond the added teachings of the humans who had added to God's word. So it was the Sabbath day, verse 14, and now begins this personal analysis where the Pharisees begin interviewing this man very specifically. Verse 15, Then again the Pharisees also asked him how he had received the sight. He said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Again, very simple explanation. This is what I did. This is what happened. Now listen to the conclusions that we find in verse 16. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. Mm. Here these Pharisees are divided. These Pharisees are not in agreement, and there's two camps. And I don't know which one was bigger, but if I had to guess, I would have to say it's probably the first one. I wonder who were the people saying the second one. The second one is, how can a man who is a sinner do such miracles? I have a suggestion. I have a guess. At least one of them was probably, if I'm guessing, was Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus, we found him in chapter 7 challenging them with some truth, didn't we? And we know that he had met with Jesus, and we know by the end of the book that he was a true believer in his heart. So the, I believe the bigger group is saying, hey, he broke the Sabbath. There's no way this man is from God. Let's pause for a quick moment here and make some application their interpretation of the Sabbath was not based on the Bible. It was not based on the words of God. It was based on the added in things from men. And I want to just urge us in this matter, if we are going to judge religious leaders, if we are going to judge teachers, if you're going to judge pastors, you need to do so by the word of God. You know why? 
Because sometimes, listen to me carefully, sometimes there are pastors and religious leaders and others who put themselves above the Bible. And you know when they do that? They're in big trouble. And we as the people of God need to know the Word of God and to to see what God expects of leaders and what is right and wrong. And when uh, leaders disobey the Scripture, they need to be held to account. Well, in this passage, they're trying to say, oh, he's breaking the Sabbath, so he's not from God. Well, guess what their analysis was based on? The words of men. It wasn't based on the Scripture. It was based on added things that weren't in the Bible. There's no law in the Old Testament that says healings are not allowed on the Sabbath day. It's not in there. It's not in there. There's no uh, forbidding of washing your eyes on the Sabbath day. It's not in there. right? There was nothing that happened that was against the Bible. But they had mixed in the teachings of men into their thinking. And then when they judged Jesus, they dismissed him. Do you know that's part of Satan's plot, is to take God's word and mix it with the teachings of men and the doctrines of men and, and other things, at least in people's minds, And then when they try to say what's right and wrong, they got the standard all messed up. The Scripture is our authority. The Scripture is our standard. And uh, boy, if I could just urge us that there is no other guide for life, for practice, for belief. If we don't have the, the words of God, we're in big trouble. But we do. We have the Scripture. It's been kept for us, and it's our authority. And the church and the pastor is never above the Scripture. That includes, it most especially includes this pastor. The Word of God is our authority. So these, these Pharisees are judging Jesus. They're saying He can't be from God because He's breaking the Sabbath. But the other side says this. How can a man who is a sinner do such miracles? See, the one group is all wrapped up in the Sabbath part of things. But the other group is saying, well, look at the miracle. Look at the miracle itself. How could someone who is a sinner do, and notice it says, such miracles. Such miracles. In other words, this type of miracle. There had been some Old Testament miracles. It's not as though miracles never, ever, ever happened before Jesus. It's not true. But miracles like this never happened before Jesus. And they're saying, this miracle is in a whole other category, and... The men of the Old Testament were prophets, and certain ones occasionally had a miracle done through them. So, you know, they at least were sinners. And they, but but here's someone who's above that. Here's someone who's doing greater things than that. You know what Jesus is going to do in just a little bit in John? He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And you know, this this miracle is like a thunder shot that went forth through the area because Lazarus was well known, and there was no way they could argue with this. And so, um, so Jesus, I think, also throughout his ministry increased the power of his miracles. And so there was a stronger and a greater witness. And there are some people, a few at least, of these Pharisees saying, hold on a minute. Let's stop and look at the miracles. Jesus, part of the reason these miracles were done were to prove that he was who he said he was. Verse 17, now they turn to the man. I like this. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about him that he has opened your eyes? They say, what are your thoughts about this guy that he, he, you know, gave you your eyesight? He said, he is a prophet. Now, I don't know if you caught this, but back in verse 12, when he's asked by the crowd, I'm sorry, not verse 12, um, verse 11. When he's asked in verse 10, how were your eyes opened? He answers by saying, a man who is called Jesus. So he calls him a man in verse 11. 
Now that he's, he's pressed further about this in verse 17, he answers, he is a prophet, right? And as we work through the text, next Sunday, we're going to find him having an even higher view of Jesus. And I think we've pointed this out before. We understand uh, the world has views of Jesus, and some of them see him as a human and just a human. Others say, no, he was a human, but he was also a prophet. But as we study the word of God and we see who he really was, we see he was human, he was a prophet, but he was far higher than that. He was the son of God come down for us. So what's happening in John 9 is this man is being moved along this spectrum. He's a man, he's a prophet, and pretty soon he's going to say he's the son of God. And so he is growing in his view of Jesus throughout the passage. But notice verse 18, the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight. Now, why was it they didn't believe that he was born blind? What was their motive? Why was it they didn't believe him? Because the crowds certainly understood that it was him, and he was saying, I'm him, but they didn't believe it. You know why they didn't believe it? Jesus did. Jesus did it. They didn't want to attribute the miracle to Jesus. And boy, don't we see that as well, too. You, you, uh, you grow in Christ, and the Lord starts to change your life, and you tell someone about it. They say, oh, well, that's, that's really just, uh, just an effect of greater willpower on your part. You know? No, it's Jesus that did this. Oh, no, that's, uh, you, you just uh, reached a new age of maturity, and you're just finally growing up. You know? No, this was Jesus. And they don't want to give the credit to Jesus in the text. They don't want him to get the glory for this. And they're doing everything they can to disprove this story. Because people know this blind man. People know this blind man. So in verse uh, 19, they bring in the parents and they, they ask them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? Listen to the deflection of the parents. We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know by what means he now sees. We do not know who has opened his eyes. He is of age. Ask him. He shall speak for himself. The Bible explains the reason they didn't want to get too involved. They say, he is our son, he was born blind, but we don't know anything about how this healing took place. And they're really staying uh, apart from this. They're trying to isolate themselves away from this because verse 22 says, his parents spoke these words because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if any man confessed that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. This is a sad piece of the story, but it's also very realistic. It's very realistic. Because here's the deal. If you want to think that Jesus is a man, nobody has a problem with that. And even if you want to give enough credence to Jesus, to simply being a prophet of God, people can be okay with that. But once you start saying that Jesus is the Christ, the way, the answer, the truth, all of a sudden, people start having a problem with that. And they start saying, oh no, we can't tolerate that. That's closed-minded. That's uh, exclusive. That's a problem. And see, you could be in the synagogue and believe that Jesus was a man. And you could probably even be in the synagogue and agree that he was a prophet. But once you start saying he's the Christ, you are going to get put out. You are going to be isolated. You are going to be excommunicated from the group we probably don't fully understand this idea of being put out of the synagogue. Uh, there were different levels. There was a temporary level, sort of like a, what we would call suspension, you know, like 30 days, 
and then there was a permanent one. And which one they're talking about, we don't know. But the, the result is very similar, whether it's permanent or temporary. And the result is this. The synagogue was not just a place of worship, but it was also a place of community. And so if you were ostracized out of the synagogue, you would probably also be ostracized from the business realm and from the social realm. You would not be welcomed. You would not be talked with. You would be shunned. And so these parents are like, oh, well, we don't know anything about the uh, healing. We, we don't know anything about that. He's our son. We're not disowning him. And uh, he was born blind, but we don't know anything about that. So don't ask us. Ask him. Ask him. They don't want to get wrapped up in the controversy. They feared the Jews. We are very blessed here in America with the freedoms we have. But there are other nations and other places where people suffer greatly for believing that Jesus is the Christ. And there are, are places even today, sometimes in Muslim nations, and even in more limited ways in Buddhist and Hindu nations, where people receive great suffering if they will simply say, Jesus is Lord. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's my Savior. And to me, when I think of Christian heroes, uh, missionaries immediately come to mind, and a second one that comes right into my mind are people that endure this kind of persecution. And there was a level of persecution already happening in that day and time where if you said that Jesus was the Christ, you were put out. You were excommunicated. You were not allowed to be participating in good society. You know, we have to ask the question, and I want you to think about this for just a minute. Is Jesus really worth all that? It really boils down to whether or not you believe he is who he said he is. Because if he's just a man, or if he's just a prophet, I'm not going to suffer for that, right? I mean, I can kind of go off and, you know, just pass that by. But if he's the son of God, if he's the answer for my sin, if he's the coming king who's going to rule this earth, if he is the, the center of heaven for all of eternity, then that means, yes, he's worth it. If he died for my sins, then yes, he's worth it. And you know what's going to happen? What's going to happen next week? I hate to, you know give away the story, but you have a Bible, you can read it. What happens is that this man comes to faith in Christ and he does get put out of the synagogue and he comes to see that Jesus is the Son of God and he has faith in Him. And so what happens in this man's life is he gets his physical eyes and next week he gets his spiritual eyes and every minute of it is worth it. Every minute of it, Jesus is worthy of it. And that's where, as I read the Word of God, as I preach the Word of God, as I live the truth of the Word of God, I say to you, it is worth it to follow Jesus. It's worth it to obey, to let Him lead, to give your life to Him. And our world says, oh no, He's not worth it. And I say to you today, He is worth it. He's worth every moment, every piece of obedience we can give Him. He is worth it. And the world can threaten and they can come along and say, oh, but what about this? And, oh, you're going to be missing out on this. And what about that? And I say, what about Jesus? I say, what about him? What about his glory? What about his greatness? And that's the big thing. The world hasn't seen Jesus the way we have. And when you see Jesus for who he is, it has a way of blowing down all those lesser things. Of him being Lord, of him being worth it. Satan says Jesus isn't worth it. But I'm here to say he's wrong. Jesus is worth it. And if you get put out, you get put out. If people don't like you, people don't like you. 
And I'm not minimizing the pain of that, but what I'm doing is maximizing the greatness of Jesus. He's worthy. On our missions trip, we met some people who experience more ostracization for their faith. In, in Nepal, the, the culture is very much wrapped up with the religion, and so a lot of the celebrations and the holidays are worshiping false gods and offering sacrifices to certain gods. And so, as a Christian, when someone seeks, they receive Christ and they follow the Lord there, they don't offer sacrifice to gods. And in the wedding ceremony, there's sacrificing to gods. And so, it's very different from, from here in many ways. But the point is, for people to live for the Lord there, they have to say, I'm not going to sacrifice to these idols. I worship the Lord and I worship Him only. I don't worship any other God. So, what that means then is their family gets offended. And their neighbors say, what's wrong with, what, what's wrong with you? Why, aren't you? why don't you have the sacrifice out? Like, what? And, and it sometimes causes them to be mistreated and to be looked down upon. And, and the believers there, though, I think it's a little more clear than it is here, right? Because it's like there's so much gray here between, you know, what we ought to be and what we not ought to be and the kind of this gray in between. But, but the lines are so much more clear there. And yet there's believers that with joy, with joy, they worship Jesus. And they are not in their heart saying, oh, look at all that I've given up for the Lord. No, they're looking at the Lord and they're seeing who he is. And this is such a beautiful and transformative story, watching what God does with this blind man. And so as we close, I want to just leave this with you. And I want us to think about ourselves. Jesus wants to transform you. He wants to meet your need. And many times that involves your choices as well. But he says, if you will do this, I will do this. We need to grab a hold of those promises. And I want to also leave you with this. In your life, it is worth it to follow Jesus. It's worth it to obey him. He is worthy. And if you get put out, if other pressures and problems come into your life, don't lose sight of the Savior. Don't lose sight of the Jesus that has saved you. Don't lose sight of the Savior that is yours. Because that is what makes all the sacrifice worth it. Let's bow our heads in prayer together. I don't know how God has used this in your heart and your life. But I'm so thankful for this passage and this text, and I trust that God will use it in your heart and your life. If you're here and you want to speak with someone, we're available right after the service. Maybe you have a question, you can drop that on the contact card, and we'll definitely follow up with you this week. But this is also a time in your own heart to respond to the Lord, um, to pray, maybe just to rejoice in His greatness. Maybe it's to um, just confess, uh, valuing something else more than Christ. But whatever it would be, do respond to the Lord. Uh, follow as He leads, and we'll have a short time of prayer, and we'll sing in a moment. Um, but I'll close in prayer, and then we'll have a little more prayer time in song. Lord, we thank You for Your Word here, and You showed Your great power with this blind man, and You did a glorious work through him. And I'm thankful, Lord, that You are worthy. And this blind man is about to learn uh, how worthy You really are. Help us as your people here in 2023 to recognize the greatness and the glory of Jesus. We have a beautiful and a big God. And I pray, O oh Lord, that we would let that capture our hearts. Help us to follow you in obedience. Some of the great things you want to do in our life are hinged upon choices that we make. And I pray you give us strength for those choices. May we clearly see them 
and have your help to follow you fully. Lord, for whatever the need is, whatever the burden is, would you address it by your spirit, we pray. Help us in Jesus' name, amen.